Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. WBEW.org. Um, right now, it is not streaming online, and we'll let you know if that change when that changes. Um, this is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding and making connections on the air every Sunday at noon. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and not the radio station. And today in the studio, we have Chris Livency, who is an educator, um, will be teaching in Springfield, Vermont. Yes. And he was teaching down in Holyoke uh, previously. And myself, Nina Kunimoto, I am a, a local educator. And so today's topic is Puerto Rico Part 2, Colonialism and Independence. Um, the last time we talked about Puerto Rico, we um, had a conversation with Mr. Nelson Roman, who was the Ward 2 rep from Holyoke, who talked about some of the issues currently being faced on the island and the diaspora. Today, we'll be going a bit deeper into this important topic and hearing from a few other folks from Puerto Rico. Dr. Heida Martinez, who is from Puerto Rico, but she moved here um, to get her PhD at uh, UMass Amherst, and she's also a professor in the um, social, social justice education program there. Um, she is a psychologist. And we will also be hearing from U.S. Representative Luis Gutierrez from Illinois, Maria Cartagena, a community organizer in Holyoke, and Luis Barrios, a professor of Latin American studies at John Jay University. Yes, thank you, Nina. We're uh, excited to do part two, and we hope that we'll have several other parts, and we'd really like to kind of focus this show or connect it to um, why does this matter? What, what, why is this important to us and here in Brattleboro and other places? And so um, both of us as history teachers, uh, we see patterns and connections. And I think that um, we can't help but see how this pattern um, that happened to Puerto Rico and is happening to Puerto Rico is happening around the world and all over this country. And so I'd like to go a little deeper into that. And we certainly have more shows about this. But uh, we'd like to start a little bit of a song break and this song is called Harlem River Drive by Eddie Palmieri. And as you may or may not know, New York's Harlem River Drive is a dividing line, as he describes it, a highway where the rich zip past the poor, says singer Jimmy Norman. Uh, Eddie Palmieri's Latin funk band of the same name tackled these hard truths playing prisons and speaking to the common man, and one of the turning points of salsa being a more political force, um, particularly after the... Um, uh, or involvement with the Young Lords. And so this song is called Harlem River Drive by Eddie Palmieri. From a hundred 
That was Harlem River Drive by Eddie Palmieri, which talked a little bit about the divide in our country, specifically a highway that can separate us. So. And you're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 Brattleboro Community Radio Station, and this is Indigo Radio, uh, playing every week at noon. Um, and today we're talking about Puerto Rico, and this is our second Part two of um, our sort of, I guess it's a series now on <laughs> yep. um, Puerto Rico, because we're, we're this isn't the last one. Yep. Um, and so I wanted to, if you weren't with us the last time, I wanted to 
for, for newer listeners, give an overview of the historical context of Puerto Rico and also mention some things that weren't mentioned the last time. Um, so Puerto Rico was colonized um, in the 1500s. Columbus stopped by. It wasn't Columbus himself, but he stopped by for kind of like a refueling. And then many years later, it was colonized by another conquistador. And um, the indigenous population was enslaved and uh, decimated through disease. And so it was colonized by Spain for about 400 years. And then the, the Puerto Ricans resisted against the Spanish in sort of the early to mid-1800s. It was really when it started taking up momentum. And the U.S. and Spain got into a war called the Spanish-American War um, in 1898, and supposedly fighting for the freedom of many of the, the Philippines and Cuba and Puerto Rico. But 12 hours after Puerto Rico was declared independent from Spain, the United States decided that they are going to be the next colonizers. That they weren't going to give up this valuable, quote, gold port. And that's what Puerto Rico means. Uh, Puerto is, is a gate and Rico means rich. And so in 1900, right, so that was in 19, uh, 1898. So in 1900, the United States um, put out the Foraker Act, which basically made, officially made Puerto Rico a territory of the United States. Um, and no government official in Puerto Rico would be elected. It's almost like a dictatorship, I suppose, that the president of the United States appoints the governor, appoints the top administrators. Puerto Ricans had a house of delegates, and oftentimes they opposed the the U.S. government's decisions, but the U.S. government had more power over them, so their voice basically didn't matter. And it, within that same Foraker Act, they gave U.S. corporations key things. They gave U.S. corporations tax haven, basically. They can go there tax-free, build um, factories, etc., and it was mainly for sugar. But the second important thing the Foraker Act did was that it forced the dollar on Puerto Rico, which devalued their currency, and basically took the wealth away from Puerto Ricans immediately, and U.S. companies came in and gobbled up all the land. And I, I would just like to, to reiterate that fact. So, Forcing them to use the dollar, just eliminating the peso, um, all of that wealth and resources that um, people in the island had accumulated instantly became non-existent and vulnerable to, yeah. um, to U.S. interests. 80%, I don't have the numbers exactly in front of me. Oh, yeah, 80%, um, by 1934, 80% of all sugarcane farms in Puerto Rico were owned by U.S. Uh, companies. Um, so, uh, and the other thing which, which the Foraker Act forced upon the Puerto Ricans was to speak English. So they'd been speaking Spanish for 400 years, and now they had to immediately switch to um, English. Which and further kind of um, limits kind of their opportunity and their, their access to their absolutely. own resources. And the next important thing that happens is the insular cases in 1901, um, which is sort of Puerto Rico's Dred Scott decision. It was a, a case called Downs versus Bedell. And basically, the question was whether to extend the U.S. Constitution to apply to territories outside the United States. And the Supreme Court basically said that they did not want to incorporate people who were savages and of alien races. Uh, they actually wrote that in their brief, the Supreme Court justices did. Um, so basically, 
people in Puerto Rico did not have the same rights as American citizens. Um, the next important thing, and all of this really leads up to Puerto Rico today being in debt and, and being in the position that they're in. So the Jones Act in 1917, one of the biggest reasons why uh, Woodrow Wilson wanted the Jones Act was because of World War I. U.S. needed bodies to fight in the war, and what better place than to go to an island that you've colonized? The House of Delegates opposed becoming U.S. citizens, but of course, their voice doesn't matter. So they immediately became U.S. citizens. And, and therefore could go fight in the war. Exactly. Yeah. And, and in fact, fighting a segregated, called, um, they were called Borinquens. Um, they, were, they were segregated, just like African-Americans were segregated in their own companies. So it wasn't until 1948 that, uh, with, with sort of the after World War II, that Puerto Ricans could elect their own governors because there was an international push at that point of quote-unquote decolonizing. In 1952, uh, the country shifted to becoming a commonwealth, which is asociado libre, is what they call it in Puerto Rico in Spanish, which is basically just limited self-rule. It means you could have your own constitution. That's it. And your own governor. And... And a note about the constitution, if I'm uh, not mistaken, um, you can have whatever you want in that, but the U.S. mainland's um, decisions supersede anything that would be in that constitution. So, And, I mean, anything, any, they don't have power. That's it. Yep. <laughs> that, I mean, I don't yeah. think there's any other way to put it than they don't yep. have power. So um, we're going to play a clip by Luis Barrios. He's a professor of Latin, Mar Latin American studies at John Jay University. And he'll, he talks about the converting of uh, PR from a self-sustaining agricultural country um, and to monocropping of sugarcane and other crops for the U.S.-owned uh, companies. And then after that um, shift, so moving them, forcing them to move from self-sustaining agriculture to this profit of uh, of sugarcane, which they're not reaping any of the benefits of the profits. They're not controlling any of the means of production. They're not controlling um, any of the resources of that. And once that happened, then switching to um, trying to force the island into an industrial colony of, of the U.S. where uh, U.S. corporations could come in tax-free um, into the country. So this is a, a short clip from Luis Barrio, who is a professor of Latin American studies at John Jay University. There was a plan from the beginning to transform the social economy of Puerto Rico uh, without taking into consideration Puerto Ricans. So we are an agricultural country with the biggest production, uh, sugar, uh, tobacco, and uh, coffee. And then other products that we use. It was something that demonstrated that we had the capacity to produce what we did, okay? The U.S. came with this plan to convert Puerto Rico from an agriculture into an industrial country. The plan from the beginning was, and this is where we are to understand all this so-called crisis, uh, the plan from the beginning was we need to move Puerto Rico into producing what they don't need, and buying 
what they need. When the first civilian governor of Puerto Rico, Charles Herbert Allen, was appointed in 1901, he had plans to expand Puerto Rico's sugar slave economy. Allen used his short term as governor to appoint dozens of political operatives that would later grant him easy access for exploitation. He soon became the president of the largest sugar refinery in the world, the American Sugar Refining Company. As author Nelson Dennis notes, by 1930, Allen and U.S. banking interests had converted 45% of all arable land in Puerto Rico into sugar plantations. These bank syndicates also owned the postal system, the entire coastal railroad, and the international seaport of San Juan. By 1934, 80% of all the sugarcane farms in Puerto Rico were owned by a U.S. banking syndicate. Allen and the American Sugar Refining Company set the template for all of them. With a rising industrial economy, U.S. business wanted to make more money out of its colonial project. So the government implemented a series of tax incentives to attract private capital into Puerto Rico, called Operation Bootstrap. Plantations became refineries and factories, causing devastating consequences to the social fabric of the island and causing a mass exodus of farm workers to the U.S. Those who stayed were subjected to a horrifying racist program. Between 1936 and 1968, the U.S. waged a eugenics campaign to sterilize as many Puerto Rican women as possible. During that time, a shocking one-third of all women living in Puerto Rico had their ability to have a child taken away. First, they went into testing in Puerto Rico for more than 20 years, birth control pills. When it was ready, they brought that here. But a lot of women died in Puerto Rico during that type of experiment. And then they went without telling Puerto Rican women that they were going to be sterilized, they started doing that to stop the Puerto Rican population. There was a complete displacement with, through Fomento Cooperativo to get Puerto Ricans out. And they started sending people here, agriculture here. We'll post the full uh, clip of that. It's, it's actually a 25-minute documentary uh, by Abby Martin called um, The Empire Files. And so we'll, we'll post that onto Facebook. Um, and I just want to say, too, again, uh, I'll say this several times today, that as historians, we see patterns and um, both how people, human relations uh, exist and also um, kind of economic relations. And so um, as Luis Barrios mentions, um, the, the profit taking out of the country. But one of the things I think uh, is not very well known and is just so shocking to me um, is when that shift occurred, you have a lot of people that are now forced out of the work that they've been doing, forced out of being able to provide for themselves in a kind of economy that they don't have access to uh, be able to uh, feed their families. And so one of the, and you put on top of that a layer of racism and viewing these people as less than. And so you get this eugenics movement, uh, eugenics practice there. And so when they were first experimenting with birth control and, and testing on Puerto Rican women and women dying from that, and then the sterilization of women, uh, the number I, I, is just shocking. One-third of all women on the island being uh, sterilized against their will, against their knowledge, um, is just shocking to me. Yeah, and, and you know, just kind of where our lens is kind of focused on Puerto Rico, but if we pull the lens back, like this is a pattern, right? This is a the 
the forced out of a particular work, uh, the the changing of economic relations. We see that globally in Africa, in Asia, everywhere. And so we kind of need to see like what this larger force is that that it's a, a similar, it's all coming from the same place, right, through imperialism and, and capitalism. And, and even with sterilization, right, we see that here in the United States with Native Americans, poor whites, African Americans. Um, so Up into the 50s and 60s. Absolutely. Um, just shocking and needs yeah. to be told. They mentioned um, Luis Munoz Marin. Uh, so M- Munoz Marin was an uh, um, independentista. He actually, uh, his dad took part in the independence from Spain. So he, he already was kind of known and uh, in the, on the island and kind of famous. Um, initially, he put the face on that he was an in- independentista, meaning that he wanted independence of Puerto Rico from the United States and that he was a socialist. Um, however, when he seized power through elections, because, I mean, he got elected, right? He was the first yep. elected governor of Puerto Rico uh, in 1948. He immediately turned the island into a buffet for corporations and that Operation Bootstrap, right? And this is directly connected to the, uh, the, the debt crisis today, right? So he basically... That's a, that's a great point, Nina. I think we got to go back and forth in history and look at where we are today. And so we see strikes at universities for the um, increase in tuition, and we see this monumental debt that they cannot possibly pay off. Mm-hmm. And we see an exodus of people from the island. What does all this come from? And so as you're laying out here, this comes from the history that has been imposed on them against their will, yeah. against any kind of, quote, democracy and freedom they they've been forced into this and so when we go back and forth in history we see uh, where we are today based on what happened in the past and so i think it's it's very clear yeah and in the operation bootstrap they munoz marin allowed foreign investment to come in right with low taxes duty-free export and um and so one of the things that happened that where it connects to our next segment, which is going to be about the diaspora here in the United States, is that the people, of course, we said mentioned earlier that a lot of the jibaros, which means a peasant in, in Puerto Rico, um, were basically displaced and they were just working, right, for others. So they see this opportunity in the cities with all these factories coming from the United States paying maybe just a little bit more than what they're getting in the countryside. And so they flee to the cities, and um, but there aren't enough jobs. Exactly. So Munoz Marin basically facilitates an emigration to the United States. And so this whole emigration, really, there was one huge emigration in right during the Great Depression. The New Deal didn't extend to Puerto Rico, just like the Constitution didn't. Um, And so a lot of people emigrated here to the U.S. to find jobs. But so the next one, so all these like tax incentives, right? People were really upset by these tax incentives and saying that that's what's causing the poverty. And of course, that's true. Um, So in 2006, they repealed that tax incentive. Well, what do corporations do? They want cheap labor. So they left for better deals out in the world for Mm -hmm. cheaper labor. Puerto Rico goes into recession, over 12% unemployment on the island, huge exodus in, uh, right after that here to the United States. So uh, that kind of brings us really into 
kind of the debt crisis. And, and again, I think the connections, too, that we see in other parts of the world. So certainly what happened in Mexico um, with NAFTA and them being uh, unable to sell corn and other products that they would sell and to feed themselves because the U.S. was bringing in cheaper uh, corn and rushing to the cities. And then you get all kinds of um, things happening in the city from being disconnected from your um, your safety net in your community. So crime rises, um, poverty rises. There's definitely not enough jobs. And so we see that in Mexico, we see that around the world, and we certainly have been seeing that in, in Puerto Rico. Yeah. So the next clip we're going to play is of um, Representative Luis Gutierrez. He is a representative from Illinois, and he talks about this program called PROMESA, which is, um, is a program. So in 2015, Puerto Rico, and there's, it's been a huge battle because Puerto Rico is not a state. It cannot declare uh, bankruptcy like Detroit did um, and some other cities did in the United States. So, but it, it pushed, Puerto Rico pushed to try to, to file for bankruptcy. And so finally the, um, the Congress assigned this uh, commission or whatever, this act called PROMESA, and um, they don't, you, it's appointed. that There's no election, there's no Puerto Rican voices. Um, and so... And I think, Nina, too, one of the key parts of this, and again, we see this around the world, certainly what the World Bank and the IMF have done, um, if you owe them money and they're happy to initially lend you money, and when you can't pay, which happens most often, um, then they come in and take over and they very clearly um, in all over the world apply similar kinds of ideology. And so in Puerto Rico and other places, cut social services, yep. cut um, cut hospital benefits, cut education, cut all of those things to pay back the debt. The debt becomes supremely important. And so PROMESA, again, a non-elected um, entity, is now implementing those uh, neoliberal ideas of how to get out of this, quote, debt that somehow mysteriously happened. So let's hear just a quick um, clip from Senator Luis Gutierrez of Illinois. That they are territory and that therefore they are property of the United States of America. The Jones Act imposed on the people of Puerto Rico the most expensive merchant marines in the world. Imposed on the people cost $500 million a year. Why don't we lift that from them? I mean, we believe in democracy. We believe they should be free. Why don't we lift that from them? You are imposing a junta, because that's what they're calling it. There will be no difference between this junta and the junta of Pinochet in Chile, as far as the international community is concerned. That's pretty chilling, right? That it's no different from the junta Pinochet, right? The, uh, the man we, uh, we instated and overthrew Allende 19, September 11th, 1973. Who, who nowadays we would all... Um, wholeheartedly agree was a horrible dictator and disappeared yeah. thousands of people. Um, and to, for a U.S. representative to call out what the U.S. is doing and saying it's no different than that is a, a pretty, pretty uh, telling statement. Yeah. And for our listeners, if you don't, uh, PROMESA is Puerto Rico Oversight <coughs> Management and Economic Stability Act. And we're going to go to a quick song break. Yeah, and just so let you know, this is Indigo Radio. We're here every Sunday from 12 to 1. Um, this is a part two of a series talking about Puerto Rico and its connections. And this song break we're doing, um, Nina referred to this. Um, when 
the U.S. took over um, after Spanish rule. They outlawed the speaking of Spanish. Um, and when the independence movements happened um, again in Puerto Rico, they also banned the Puerto Rican flag. And so this song, um, Que Bonita Bandera, is a, a song about the Puerto Rican flag and how it was banned for a long time by colonial decree. And so the song was very much viewed as subversive, the so-called gag law in Puerto Rico, which made it illegal to own or display a flag, the Puerto Rican flag, until 1957, which again blows my mind. <laughs> and it, it's an attempt to suppress the pro-independence movement on the island. And so um, as the singer uh, says, he says, so for us singing, what a beautiful flag is similar to when an African-Americans begin to say black is beautiful because for centuries black people were told that they were ugly. So this is Que Bonita uh, Bandera.
Welcome back. This is Indigo Radio. We're here every Sunday from 12 to 1. Um, and this is WVWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. And just to clarify, the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. You just heard a song called Que Bonita Bandera, which talks about the Puerto Rican flag. And that is um, the topic that we've been talking about today. And this is part two, actually, of a a series that we're doing um, and where the flag was banned and that's what the song talks about but we're, we're kind of making connections about um, all of those things that we've been hearing in the news in bits and pieces the independence vote in Puerto Rico the monstrous debt and they're not being allowed to declare bankruptcy in Puerto Rico student strikes uh, closing of hospitals and schools um, and so we're making connections hopefully and deepening our understanding a little bit about this so we'd like to jump right in and play another clip for you by a woman named Maria Cartagena and she was speaking at the Food Justice Conference and Maria is a uh, longtime community organizer in Holyoke and she's also the coordinator for the Five Colleges Community Partnership in Holyoke and she's going to talk a little bit about the history of workers um, in Holyoke but in particular uh, Puerto Ricans and she makes a nice connection and hopefully that's what we're doing that um, this is certainly about Puerto Rico but we can extrapolate and make connections to um, other people around the world and other workers around the world and she does that and talks a little bit about uh, Holyoke as an industrial city and how it's been built to separate and segregate social classes Germans, Polish, Irish and so let's hear a little bit from her this, again, is Maria Cartagena, who is an activist and organizer in Holyoke. These apartments were really built for the workers in the mills, right? So they're hundreds of years old. Um, and they weren't built to last very long. You can see that, like, if you look at the, there's very little green here. People are all sort of clumped up together. But, lot, you know, people work many hours in Holyoke. They would go leave like four o'clock in the morning, go work. The reason why these are so close to the mills, all of these here are mills around the area, is because people would come home, rest, and then go back for like a third shift. Right? So the work was hard. Uh, usually young children worked in these mills. Um, if you can see, I, I'm always uh, interested in what I hear people say, oh, well, they this. Foreign. Holyoke has always been a poor city, right, in terms of the workers. Because what you need to understand is that Holyoke was the, one of the first industrial cities. It was built to separate social classes, right? So when you walk up to downtown, you can see where poverty is because it's all step, it's segregated. So it, it was built that way. Um, so first, French Canadians, uh, 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 Germans, uh, Polish, and then Irish. Right? And then in the 50s and 60s, and then even mostly in the 70s, the next group of migrating uh, folks were Puerto Rican. Why would that shift anything? What's the difference between Puerto Ricans and all the other immigrating groups that came? What? Exactly. Puerto Ricans, for those who don't know, are U.S. citizens. The status that was given to Puerto Ricans on the island as a result of the Jones Act. 
and mostly because they needed our men to fight in World War II. Right? So when people say Puerto Ricans are immigrants, we're not. We're migrants. We can move from the island to the mainland, and we don't need a visa. We don't need a passport because uh, we're part of the U.S. We're not actually. Let me rephrase that because I'm going to get a little political here. We're not really part of the U.S. We are colonized by the U.S. Right? One of the reasons why uh, Puerto Rico is in the economic crisis it is today is because we can we don't have the power to import and export our goods. The U.S. government does, right? So we are um, a, a colony. Why would Puerto Ricans come to Holyoke? Well, I don't know what that is. Sorry, uh, I'm going to leave it here because. Um, why, do, why do Puerto Ricans come to Holyoke? Uh, Puerto Ricans came to Holyoke again in the beginning 50s and 60s because of the Connecticut River. And in Connecticut, there was a lot of tobacco fields. Puerto Ricans came to do agricultural work because that is our background. On the island, before it was industrialized by the U.S., people farmed. Um, and so, that is our background. So particularly men would come to New England to work in the farms. I remember as a young girl uh, hearing at like 4 o'clock in the morning, God, that's what they can try. Um, people in, in our, our building yelling, and then you can hear all the footsteps. <laughs> the, the buses would come and pick up the men. And not just men, women also worked in the tobacco fields, but it was primarily men. Um, so what ended up happening was in the, ooh, sorry, I think warned me about that. Um, as World War II, the GI Bill had a lot to do with particularly young white men going off to college, and that led to vacancy in a lot of the, the manufacturing companies. And so as Puerto Rican men, I'm trying to give you sort of like, la movida. Like how things go back and forth. As men were here in Holyoke working in the tobacco fields, they would find out about a position at Ampad, right? Or a position at Hamden Papers. Or some of the women would find out about um, opportunities in factories. I know for certain my mother came to Holyoke to work at one of the factories um, on Main Street. Of Echo Thread. She was a major seamstress, a senior seamstress. And so, as white men were going off, getting an education, Puerto Rican men were, take, were taking those uh, 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 job opportunities that were being vacant. Because a lot of the men were not returning back to Puerto right? Unless they were part of the power structure. So, if they were going off to college and becoming teachers, men. Particularly, some men were given, it was almost like a guarantee that they would get a job at a school system, at the police department, at Coyote um, Hospital. But those same opportunities didn't happen for Puerto Ricans, right? The other piece that when I asked um, what distinguishes Puerto Ricans from every other immigrating group is the color of our skin. Right? And although 
Puerto Ricans, um, we are mixed race. We have some of us that are light. You have some of us that um, have Taino Indian, and you have some with, who are a little darker who have um, that we have African roots in us too. So we're very a very mixed race. And but what separates us from all the other immigrant groups was the fact that we were brown. That's a reality. We can't take that away from the equation. Great. Welcome back. You're listening to WVEW Indigo Radio. And that was Maria Cartagena. And she was speaking at the um, food uh, and social justice conference that they had down in Holyoke a couple months ago. And we'll put the clip, that particular clip, up on uh, Facebook if you want to hear her whole talk. It's, it's an excellent talk about about Holyoke and about food and about justice. And I hear that a lot too. Why, why are there so many Puerto Ricans in Holyoke? And, and uh, she and others kind of lay that out as a condition of the economic conditions on the island that were imposed on them. And so um, coming, to Holyoke, uh, coming to Holyoke in the area to work, not only to pick tobacco and other things, but uh, other agricultural work, but how that shifted the forces, um, keep shifting and forcing people to, to migrate. Yeah, and then it became the paper mills and... Um, <coughs> And those got burned down. And, and, and she also mentions in there that there's always been poverty, right? Even when there was work, there was poverty in Holyoke. And today, we both, both Chris and I have taught down in Holyoke, and, and there is a lot of poverty, particularly in the Puerto Rican community, um, because, the, of course, the manufacturing jobs have left us. Yeah, and I, I, that's, I, I can't say that enough, too, that... Um, she was really clear on that, that there was, and she said Holyoke had the highest percentage per capita of millionaires from the paper mills. It was paper, the, the number one paper producer in the entire world at one point. So, and it had the highest number of millionaires, but it also had the opposite of that. You can't have that kind of wealth without poverty. And right. so there's always been poverty, whether it was the Germans, the Polish, the Irish, um, French Canadians and the Puerto Ricans. And so it's not just, uh, as she says at the end, um, people think P Puerto Ricans came to Holyoke and ruined it. They actually were fulfilling, or not fulfilling, they were, um, they were doing exactly the same thing that was kind of forced upon the Irish, the Germans, the Polish, and others. And the, Dr. Martinez, we, we had a conversation with her, and she was saying how in, even in Holyoke, there's a lot of segregation. And I mean, again, if you sort of step back and really look at the concept of divide and conquer, we saw that in Hawaii, right? They, they got workers from different places so speaking different languages and they can't communicate with each other. They can't organize. Same in Holyoke where they divided uh, yep. between Irish and... Doing work in New Orleans, I saw that as well, where they uh, would bring in uh, workers from Mexico and um, El Salvador and other places to uh, undermine the community that was already there that was asking for just fair livable wages. They, After this catastrophe, uh, this man-made disaster, they brought in workers to work. And then their workers are very vulnerable. They could all of a sudden decide not to pay them you know, after two weeks of labor and uh, deport them and so um, it's it's not a new thing that's happening and we see it over and over again these yeah. patterns so right so um, are we gonna hear Dr. Martinez? Yeah I think we're gonna we're gonna play a short clip again from um, one of the people that we have both worked with um, Professor uh, Heda Martinez mm -hmm. and Dr. Martinez um, she, she was a professor oh, she graduated from uh, UMass Amherst 
and uh, she current or no, she just uh, retired. Uh, but she was working in the uh, social justice education department. And she also was part of a, a grant-funded program that provided STEM education and, uh, for minorities and sort of postdoctoral fellowships. And she also is very active in the Puerto Rican community. So we're going to hear a little bit about her and her perspective. Yeah, so Dr. Martinez, could you tell us just a little bit about some of the work that uh, you're doing and have done? Well, I, I came to the area in 1990 um, to Amherst to finish my doctoral education, which I have started several times in Puerto Rico. I went to University of Puerto Rico in Rio Piedras. I'm originally from that area, San Juan. So I came here in 1990, uh, and I my field is psychology, which was more oriented to clinical psych and school psych. Uh, but then I found the social justice in education program at UMass. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the first year that they were doing a doctoral degree on that. So they were looking at people that already had experiences in different um, fields like education, mental health, um, the church. We were from different backgrounds, a priest. That's, and the idea at that time, the program, what they wanted was uh, education like curriculum and uh, the different areas of education in my case that we could um, adapt or modify, let's put it this way, geared toward different populations. So I was very interested in that because I've been practicing for 20 years already. Mm -hmm. I had my license as a psychologist and probably I didn't want to keep doing it in, a, in an office. I wanted more to do some more community work and teaching. And um, I saw in the social justice and education program at that time, it has changed quite mm -hmm. a bit, but at that time, like the place that I really would do my my end degree or last degree or whatever we want to call it but uh, <laughs> most recent degree yeah yeah it's like after 20 years of um, teaching psychology working at the other university in puerto rico having a private practice i realized that i probably could do psychology somewhere somehow else but i didn't have the language mm. so the social justice in education gave me the language mm. that i could use to explain what i was seeing in the field particularly education and mental health uh, that I thought it was not what I wanted to keep doing for the rest of my life. Like mm -hmm. uh, looking at populations as the same um, without differences of gender or um, race or ethnicity. So applying this to the, um, and that's when I got to the program and I found that that program really, really, really helped me uh, get the, the language and also identify those areas that I wanted to keep on working. Mm. When I finished my degree at UMass, I found that the area was really a good area for me to stay because there was a large population of Puerto Ricans, which I had never worked in Puerto Rico because I was working at the university. I had a private practice. I was work working more with um, organizations or companies like um, tuna canneries, um, mm pharmaceutical companies, uh, computer, like Microsoft. and So it was interesting. I started working as a community organizer in Puerto Rico, prepared grants from the, uh, the publication where we were doing some work in the, in the community, a poor community uh, in the western part of the island. That, that's how I, I started doing and interested in social justice work. Uh, so when I stay here, I work at the um, schools in Amherst as a school psychologist always using more the social justice lens already that I was 
that I had um, been looking at by, and when I say that, it's like when you do the testing, how do you test different populations? What are the outcomes of the testing when you are different using uh, the same tool for different populations? So mm -hmm. uh, that's part of what I have been writing about, like uh, cultural sensitive testing and mm -hmm. not only testing, but um, interpretation of the, of the tools that we use. I'm talking about the 90s. So in the 90s, still, we we're not talking too much about multicultural mm -hmm. uh, education or cultural sensitive testing or um, so. I went into that movement, and that's when I decided to stay in the area because mm -hmm. I thought uh, one of the places that I was working besides Amherst was I was consulting for Holyoke Public Schools. Okay. And I could see the differences between the school department in Amherst and the schools in Holyoke because of the population that both of them were serving. Mm -hmm. uh, so that in, way, in what I way, could, Dr. Martinez, what, in what way were they different, would you say? Well, um, Amherst is a well-funded uh, Department of Education. Mm. Uh, Holyoke is not, because you know how they allocate the, the, the money to the schools depending on the taxes and who pays the taxes. And uh, The other thing is that in, in, in Amherst, the population at that time, when I came in the 90s, were more, the Latino and the African-American were more kids that were related to the university in some aspect, either children of the professors or children of the students. So then you have a different population. You go to Holyoke and the kids in Holyoke, they have parents that don't speak the language, uh, that they are poor. Mm. So these parents cannot advocate for their children. So it's it's kind of a disconnection between the schools and the, and the, and the homes. Mm. Because not only the parents cannot connect to the school, but the schools cannot, did not connect with the parents at that time. I don't think it has changed much because you see what happened in Holyoke, how they have a receivership. Yes. And the, the, mm -hmm. yeah. um, so that's when my interest about doing something different for the schools in Holyoke came in. My work in, at UMass in the social justice um, education program uh, was using Paulo Freire's philosophy of the oppressed. I went to a workshop with him in 1992. Mm -hmm in um, Lincoln, Nebraska, the University of Nebraska, where he was. So I had that opportunity, and that just... Really? Wow. I'm so thrilled. <laughs> uh, he had been to UMass, but I was not at UMass at that time. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's when I... You, it's something like it sticks to you. Mm -hmm. So dissertation is using Paulo Freire, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, uh, with women uh, with mental health problems in Holyoke. Um, and when I say mental health problems, are not mental health problems, are diagnosis, psychiatric diagnosis, like depression, like anxiety disorders, and using um, the pedagogy of your press by helping the, the, the woman learn about their condition or learn about what happens to them or what happened to them when they got here. So all of a sudden, all these issues about oppression, about prejudice, about racism came into, and how do you do therapy if you are not aware of that? At that time, we didn't have psychiatrists that spoke Spanish. We didn't have too many therapists that spoke Spanish. Uh, usually, the clinics would have was a translator, and the translator usually was the secretary in the front oh. desk. So you didn't have, when I, I interviewed the, 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 the woman, they didn't even talk about their issues or their problems because probably the secretary in the room was her neighbor. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, right. so it, um, it was so, that's where all my interest and my, I would say, passion mm -hmm. 
to work with social justice issues, and particularly with the community that 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 is Holyoke, comes into play because Holyoke is not an homogeneous community either. There are Puerto Ricans from different backgrounds mm -hmm. there, but everyone thinks that all Puerto Ricans from Holyoke are the same. So that's another you know vision. I have been able to meet since I've been in the area for 27 years people from professionals, teachers, uh, business people, right. as well as community people. Right. So maybe we could get into. And welcome back this year. Listening to WVEW uh, FM 107.7. This is Indigo Radio, um, airing weekly Sundays at noon. And that was Dr. Heda Martinez of UMass Amherst. And we were just listening to her talk about her background, but also about sort of working with women in therapy. And if you're not talking about racism, and classism that you're not really getting to the root issues and and to connect that to our topic today which is about puerto rico and the current issue we're, we're dealing with in regards to puerto rico is the debt if you're not looking at the root causes the historical roots of of the debt and other other kind of the exodus and closings and things then you're missing the point absolutely. yeah yeah and so unfortunately we have so much to share about puerto rico that we have completely run out of time and you know we want to continue talking uh, about holyoke and the diaspora but we also want to talk a lot about resistance we haven't even touched upon the resistance in oscar lopez rivera who was recently pardoned by um former president obama and and other the, the puerto rican young lords etc cetera, etc cetera. so where we will have another segment um, very soon. We're going to hear from uh, both our guests, Maria Cartagena. We're going to hear from Dr. Martinez as well in the next segment and certainly hope to deepen uh, these connections to uh, history and present day. So, um, yeah. And we'd just like to thank Dr. Martinez for speaking with us. Um, yes, and we'll hear more from Dr. Martinez. Um, just to let you know, this is Indigo Radio. We're um, here every Sunday from 12 to 1, and this is WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM. And we're going to leave you with a song by Cultura Profectica, and it's called Nome in Teresa. And um, Cultura is a contemporary Puerto Rican band, and they're known for their unflinching social critique. And they talk about... Um, prioritizing people over the globalization madness, as they say, and consumer culture, and rather than being concerned with providing, uh, proving that they are good Americans, Cultura makes a case for independent thinking and identity in a way of um, resisting that globalization. So um, you're going to hear uh, one of our sponsors, and then we're going to take you out with a song by Cultura Profetica. Thank you very much for listening, and tune in next week at noon to Indigo Radio. Today's programming on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station.
el sol y la lluvia refresca Desde el alba hasta la puesta Es un ambiente ideal para sudar todo mal Y nací en tierra agradecida Donde crece casi todo lo que 